0: Ladies and gentlemen, we are back with another episode of Quote Unquote with KK. Last few months, we have been hosting global thought leaders on different aspects of factors of production, such as labor and employment issues emerging out of COVID crisis, capital markets and investments, technology and digital transformation, and obviously geopolitics issues with India and China. Let me set the context of today's discussion. Last, uh, we have had some heated political debate on the three farm bills that have been introduced and passed by our parliament. As a farmer who has been telling my ancestral land, I have faced several challenges not just on land issues but ability to bring innovation, a freedom to sell my produce or what I produce from my land elsewhere. and Interestingly, I spent good amount of time in 1998 when I was working with Britannia on the Prime Minister's Task Force for Food and Agri-Management Policy and Reform. And there were very far-reaching recommendations that the task force made. And as a result of the recommendations, Several measures were put in. The first decade of this century saw agriculture productivity and production increase far more faster than the previous decades in India. We achieved self-sufficiency and food security and as a result of what has happened day our corporation of india's go down stockpiled, we do not know where to store our food grains and produce and hence time that measures and what our prime minister said atma nirbarta on food security could also be looked at on today's discussion i bring in mark khan mark is Founding partner of Omnivore Fund, which is an agri-agri tech fund, fund out of the Gojraj Group. Co-founder, Jille, and he had looked up a couple of transactions when I was part of Bangalore Angels, uh, seeding a few agri and agri tech uh, ventures. I believe a couple of them were already invested by Mark's fund. Mark has a very interesting background, worked with uh, Godrej Agrovet before he started off fund, Syngenta and a couple of other organizations. He has PA from UPEN and MBA from Harvard University. So welcome on Quote quote with KK, Mark, and it's a pleasure to have you on our show.
1: It is a uh, a great pleasure to be here, KK. Thanks for having
0: me. Mark, for our audience benefit, could you elaborate what do we call as an agri-value chain or farm-to-farm? There are a lot of people talking a lot of things in the media these days, and some of them, I guess, we are on the fake news. So for the audience benefit, can you just clarify? What do we call this whole farm-to-fork or the agri and food value chain?
2: Sure. I think it's very important for people to try to avoid generalizing the Indian agricultural ecosystem. Anytime you have a system that has 130 million participants, which together with their families represents about half the population of the country, generalization is going to come up as inadequate. But broadly speaking, about 15 to 17% 17 of our GDP is just production. It means just the first step of growing. If you then take everything around that. All of the food processing, all of the logistics, all of the farm finance, insurance, all of the allied sector, you're really talking about something north of 25% of GDP, if not, which then reaches the realization that, that fundamentally the agricultural sector is very, very critical for India, that you know it employs about half the country, and especially when you define it as agribusiness as opposed to just production agriculture, this is the backbone of the not just the rural economy but in many ways the economy itself which is uh which was reflected very clearly this year when industry and services collapsed and and agriculture managed growing and became something that the entire uh entire country relied on or that that, that gdp growth was still moving in some ways forward you know it's also important to understand the regional and and the crop pattern variation india is you know when when people think about in India, oftentimes they think about, frankly, the guys who are protesting right now. They think about farmers, you know, Sardarji farmers, Punjab, who are growing wheat, right, and rice and feeding the nation. And and there's a reason for that. That is the legacy of Nribu. those are the people that ensured that India became food secure. But that's always been only a small part of, of Indian agriculture. Punjab only has like a million farmers and India has 130. So, you know, when you move beyond that and and look at the diversity that that is Indian agriculture, right, you're you're really looking at if we were to aggregate a crop, right, India is the world's large for that that's right. something over the last over the last 20 years. India is the world's largest source of milk, and milk is, in fact, our most valued. We have 80 million farmers in the dairy sector, managing 300 million head of cattle, the number of senior heads. If you look at our sugars, right, we're the second largest sugar, the second largest of rice and wheat, uh, you know, primarily grown, well, grown all over the country uh, in the case of rice and wheat, disproportionately in the north. We are the largest second largest source of Fruit, second largest vegetables, largest of pulses in the world, largest consumer of pulses as well, uh, largest spice. So, I mean, it is a very, very, very interesting agricultural economy. And in particular, noting that the challenges that we face in agri-day are more similar to the challenge faced by agriculture in the EU, America, Canada, Australia. Then we probably want, right? There is still a very strong green revolution mindset in India, which is obsessed. Which is what we needed to be clear in the nineteen sixties, and the nineteen seventies, and the nineteen eighties. When, when at least you know, for a period in the '60s, we were heavily dependent on grain imports, and you know, it was touch and go for many decades there. Correct. But what, what, US was aid with, and
0: and and whatnot? We used to probably bring in the the wheat from the US, part of the aid program as well.
2: Yeah, it was, people called it a ship to mouth pan. And, and in the wake of, in the wake of Lal Bahadur Shastri launching the Green Revolution, right? India became over time, food secure. But now, so, so right. you know, people need to understand that, that we are not lacking. It. We are not, we are in fact, overproducing, which is the norm all over the world. Right. And so find markets for what we're seeing is, is very, very critical. And look at our trade balance in agri- India is the world's largest sort of shrimp, right? So we've right. become superpower in shrimp, which which most people when they think about agriculture, again, they're thinking about North Indian rice and wheat. They're not thinking about some some dude in Andhra with Pond that is exporting his higher crop to, to uh, you know, Europe or, or the uh, more often the United States. We've become, we're the world's largest grower of bus puppy rice, and it's a major source of export revenue for us. We are one of the world's largest exporters, which always shocks, appalls Uh It's all buff, right? It's not cow, but we've am a heavy hitter in that global. Most of that, most of that goes to Southeast Asia. So it's, Always insufficient try to generalize. When we say farm to right, what we're saying is the value chain of agriculture. going from the in right, including feed, fertilizer, crop protection chemical, but also farm machinery, also animal feed, also genetic, if you're in poultry or cattle, you know, then there is primary ag, essentially a farmer growing, whatever that might be. It could be capsicum in a greenhouse. It could be a pond that has pangasius. It could, of course, be rice and wheat in rotation in Madhya, right? Then there's primary process, right? Primary, well, usually there's some level of primary trade, which is where the whole mandi system comes in that that we talk about. And then primary processing distribution sometimes exports and, and all of that and even retail and all of that put together is this farm to fork ecosystem that that omnis so Excellent.
0: so uh, this farm bill why getting so confused and heatly politicized it's just impacting one part of the farm to fork chain and I guess there are only a few states who are protesting for it. What's your viewpoint? What are the issues and what are the challenges and opportunities that uh, this farm bill actually offers to the country and to the farmers? So
2: I think, let me me start by saying that Omnivore is broadly of of the farm bills. We think they're very good ideas. We think they've been discussed and debated for 20 years. And and we think that, you know, had they been rolled out and communicated a bit better, some of this could have been avoided. You know, if you really break down the, well, let's talk for a second about what those are, you know, and then let's talk about why some people, because the opposition to the Farm Bill, in some cases, it's cynical, and in some cases, it's quite simple. So the Farm bills, their basic right? So the first, the one that most is essentially opening up the Mundi system, the APMC system, and allowing anyone that has a pan right to buy and sell agriculture. And and it helps to understand that the APMC is really a legacy of post independence in India, right? There was this right. sense that bunyas were just robbing farm money and and a real concern, and and it was an earnest effort to try to say, look, let's create regulated mandi. let's create regulated environments where we can make sure that that farmers are not being exploited by these you know wicked vyapari type people, okay. And honestly, they, for many, for a long time, I think probably did a deep job. You know, they created a very, very strong uh, post-harvest marketing infrastructure that was highly needed. And we shouldn't, you know, just because now we're ready to move past that doesn't mean we should look back on that as a giant mistake. I think like many things in, in post-independence India, there were really good reasons time for them. The problem is when people create new laws, they don't sunset them very often. So uh, okay. that's, that's easy, you know. The idea that that this this monopoly should not be, and and we've tackled kind of many ways over the last say decade, right? If you think about the entire rise an Ola in India, it was to shatter the monopoly of Correct. you know our traditional you know cabbie taxis, and and, and where you have to have a medallion, you had to you know be registered and Correct. creating competition in, in many ways work or consume work very well, right? It is now much convenient to get a taxi be It is much more standardized pricing. You don't have to argue about turning on the meter, right? In, in a lot of ways, this, you know, Quite similar, right? It's essentially saying, look, anyone would be allowed to do. It. Now let's go to the second. The second thing is ECA, the Essential Commodities Act, is again a piece of independence. Very, I rural. guess
0: that was the World War Two thing during the British era when they wanted to ration out it's for their de- armed forces.
2: It's definitely a legacy, right? It, it's this perspective of hoarding and speculation, right? It's this fear that the local merchant has all the grain in go down and is hoarding it to keep prices up it's it's a very 1950s 1960s 1940s view of it. And so this legislation created and the best way that I can describe, so, so the best way that I can describe the APMC is it's a monop, regulated. Correct. Best better. way that I describe the ECA is it's a very, very aggressive retrolicerage piece of, of regulation. It really endows bureaucrat with the right to prosecute and harassment who are more or less doing normal stuff, right? Who are right. who are storing something, who are processing, who are exporting, but but it basically allows for arbitrary fiat, and so. Yeah. Because of that arbitrary fiat, and let me be very clear: I'm not a libertarian. I consider myself on the left. But but this piece of legislation is something that in any other sector we would have ditched in 1990. But because right. of agriculture, when the
0: license permit raj
2: exactly. But this is license permit raj for agriculture. So what this has done is it like the like the old license raj. It has inhibited investment. It has inhibited modernization. Right. Why would you build a modern export term of grain if you could see, you know, a, a mid-level bureaucrat could come in and sanction you for basically doing your business of exporting, right? Exporting basmati rice or, ex- or exporting whatever. Right? right. Why create inland going to be held against you? And so and, and so this legislation essentially says, look, License Raj ended in India in 1991. We're bringing it to agriculture. And now Anyone is allowed store, process X without threat of arbitrary government takeover of pricing and stock of that, as long as prices don't cross certain levels, which are 50% grain and 100% for sub And even those circuit breakers, right, I mean, it, those circuit breakers reflect servitude, right? They could have just gotten gutted the ECA altogether and said only in the event of war and famine will we intervene, but they put these circuit breakers of 50 100% in there. Um, and then the third piece <laughs> of legislation relates to contract. And that's the one that's probably the least impact and most risk. We don't actually have a contract in India, right? If you actually look at contract farming in India, there's like three major successes. There's like potatoes for chicken, North yeah. Indian drugs, right? PepsiCo, McCain, all of that right there's that's one where they needed specialty potatoes the kind of stuff that if you try to make right an, an, an aluki at home from you would vomit terrible you know they're not meant for that they're being processed into value-added products a second right is is gherkin right north karnataka exports a few hundred million dollars of gherkin right. and and that's right. done under that farming and the third is that most of the broiler poultry grown in india is under a contract farming, whether it's a Saguna, Venkateshwara hatchery, Zorabi and Godre. Right. right? Most, most of the process these fresh, you know, and, and the brands in, in fresh poultry are all grown under contract. But that's it, right? That's basically it. There's not a contract farming story that's happened. And there's, and contract farming isn't the norm around the world, right? It's, it's, it's more of an exception. So this right. law, this law essentially says, look, contract farming is good. What is holding it back? They theorize is a lack of clarity, so they're going to create a standard set that apply to it, and and which frankly are fairly right. like you can't. It's they have tried to take a, a good balance in, in in this contract farming legislation, but the immediate impact, right? The immediate impact of APM is huge, right? Anyone right. can do anyone can do thumbda. Any agri-tech startup buyers, or any agri-corporate can buyers. The immediate impact of ECA is kind of medium, right? Because what's gonna happen is start saying, oh, I can invest now, I can start putting down that utility, that, that, you know, shovel ready.
0: But it's all,
2: but it all relates to that, that, you know, issue of shovel ready, right? It takes time to capex. This will impact capex. We'll see this over the next two to three years. And, and then on contract farming, it's much stick inspect. Like, Okay, cool. Now we have clear regulations. Maybe this will then encourage more contracts. Now, the question of why farmers, um, and who really oppose why. I think, I think it's, it's, it's important that we have a balance, right? It's important to, to, to not write. You know, to not malign millions of protests, right? That that probably think they are the right thing and challenge, right? So but but it's important to also understand the, the, the socio-political right. So if if you go to Punjab, go to Haryan, go to Western youth, you have to understand going back to the ninth, going back to that shift to mouth, a system was to ensure food security in India, to make India. And the people that delivered are the people protesting right now, are the Haryan people, are the Punjabi farmers, right, who over the last 30 years primarily grow in the winter wheat and in the summer, in the Carib, right? Right. So, ravi and curry and farmers, right, have been in work for decades. And in this, the FCI is the primary. So they procure 98, I think, or 97% of the rice and wheat in Punjab. Right. So if you're a Punjabi farmer, that's all, you know, right. right. And that system, right, has a hooked, hook, OK, because they're nice. The nice thing is you never have to think about, right. You grow rice, right? sell it to the wheat, sell it to the FCI. And when you sell it to the FCI, you get this thing called MSP, the minimum right. support government regulated by the CACP, non-agriculture price. Right. But these are like the only farmers in India that actually get MSP. Right. And the FCI doesn't, even though MSP has announced 30 commands, it's only really purchased by the FCI for six. And and, and there's a bit of it in the, around the call for e delta for rice. And all of this grain gets bought by the FCI and stored in godowns. And as you said, Right. The FCI it's doesn't
0: have. we have over. You don't have a place to store.
2: It gets stored in lots. It gets stored open in fields. Right. It gets stored in schools. Right. The FCI doesn't have nearly enough right now. Much of it, a good chunk of it rots. And we have actually right. more of it than we need. But if you if you have some right. Imagine you're a Punjabi. And this is what you told. We're told agriculture is and. You know, you've also been told that you're the heroes of the nation, Jai Kisan, right? And that you're doing the right thing. And all of a sudden, people are, are threatening that system. And in that system, by the way, right? You get an incredible amount of stuff, right? You get a fertilizer, you get a right. power, you have the best irrigation here. Right, got got all of the reb that have been around decades that you take for granted. Okay, even though the average sub per farmer in India is higher than the average income of most Indian farmers. The average Punjabi farmer gets one point seven lakh of subs right, which is higher than average, average.
0: Correct. And in, Punjabi uh, farmers, income is about seventy two or seventy five thousand people.
2: And the average Punjabi farmer is small, okay? They're right. not but their their average farm size is times the national. So right. these farmers are their first right they are what relative cross but they're also addicted they are addicted to them that they have been in and it's not their fault they were told this was what agri was and meanwhile all over the country agriculture has has kind of moved on right this system this this is you know the analogy that i tried to explain is It's a lot like Indian labor, okay? Most of the economy, right, is not even organized. And the organized sector, most of it is not unionized. But the unions are super militant because the people that were able to create them, that's what they know and that's what they want. And they're not wrong to say... That look, we fought for this. This is our system. So anything that approaches labor reform in India, massive freakout, right? right? And and this is it's kind of very very. There's nothing wrong with right. They're not. It's not wrong that they're that they're feeling threatened. But I think it's worth contextualizing that these are a privileged lot, right? Even if they aren't rich, right? But they have lived in an existence <laughs> where their inputs are taken care of, their outputs are taken care of, and all they have. To, but most of the farmers in India that's not for 95% of the farmers you know they actually have to think about what they will. make decisions based on on trends in the market and demand and then sell right based so so it's almost like the average indian farmer is a micro but the average punjabi haryanvi farmer selling into the fci is like a protector and that's the Challenge is you've got a group of people that really feel like their protected workmanship, right, is under right. So, and it's not their fault, right? That's no nobody, nobody really wants to to deal with this issue. And and what's happening here is you've got farmers that are saying these these laws are very very threatening, even though the laws don't talk about getting rid of the FCI, even though the laws don't talk about getting rid of MSP. The very fact that the worldview of the laws proposing. An agricultural sector with much private sectorisation and much more entrepreneurship. That itself is being taken as a threat, right? To you know, so they're, what they're saying is, you're not talking about the MSP right now, but obviously this step to abolishing this system that I count, okay? And and the sad truth is, right? If, if you look at at some of the things is saying, one of their major demands is that nobody be prosecuted for burning stubble, right? If you actually listen, right, like that. That's the one, I, I think it's fun to watch my left-wing friend be like, we are supporting the farmers. And I was like, reporting that they should burn, that they should be able to burn stubble without recourse. And they're like, mm, yeah, yeah. well, yes, Jai Kisan, right? It's like they, they're turning Delhi into a gas chain and they want to do right. so without any, without any, Um, but again, even that goes back to them that's created. We've created a system in North India where these farmers are incentivized to grow a, a karif rice, which is crazy. Okay. Like literally nobody should be doing that up there. It's destructive to wise. We don't need the surplus rice that they're creating. If you're growing basmati, fine, great, massive export earnings. But non-basmati rice that goes into FCI, and yes, we don't need it, okay? We can grow that in, in places that actually have water, like Orisha right? Like other, you know, other states. But because of this system, and it's because of that rice that we then you know, in order to harvest that rice, uh, plants, wheat, that's why we have stubble. So there's right. really fundamental structural stuff that needs to be done. And the reality is nobody touched because it's so politically sensitive, as we're seeing. The other thing that, that we all have to kind of, you know, take into account is that there's some additional... So whoever rules Punjab gets Bundy fees. okay? Right. And it's five thousand-year unaudited right. money, okay? So whoever right. job, there there is 85% fee and cess applied to that entire FCI, and that is for right? More, like, it is loot. And so getting rid of this system, right, threatens that. You understand why any Punjabi politician, Haryana, it's 6.5, and it's got real hardcore political reason for, for some of this often. And I think the the final thing that's worth kind of putting out is you know, and, and and by the way, I should say that some of the opposition challenge varies because it was under the Congress, under the UPA, that most of these laws were piloted at state level. Okay, right. they created a model contract farming act they created a model AP. it's just that in this situation modi is modi and modi does modi and modi basically acts right that is the thing whether it was whether it's what happened whatchamacallit call it with 3 with 370 where where nobody thought anyone would finally take the move on that and he did whether it's demonetization Right. This is kind of the Modi playbook is you don't consult a million people. You just do what you think is right. And so I think, you know, he did that again in this case. I think he was fundamentally correct in doing so. But there was a lack of dialogue. You think this kind of came out of nowhere. And and so I think combined, the fact that there wasn't much dialogue combined with the political actors, right, react this. Combined with this send from kind of protected farmers, that this mortally threatened their their entire existence, and the fact, historically, they're sort of an inherent bias in Indian agriculture. Altogether, that's why we have the maelstrom that we have today.
0: I think one of the could have been also the cases where consultations could not happen. And I think the crisis itself turned out to be an opportunity for the government to bring in this regulation as well. So very interesting perspective on on the farm bill and really appreciate very simply putting it forward.
2: I'm going to add one. I'm going to add I think the other survey is that there is a sense. That the winner, the winners of the last decade in India are that prosperity is not widely shared. And there's a sense that the winners of every sector coming down to a hand family, ending with Ani, okay, (laughs) Uh, whether whether it's Ambani or Adani or what what have you, okay, right. There is a sense that competition is diminishing, monopoly rising, and I, I think that is that that if we allow the corporate sect to come in, it's just going to be the same, right? And and someone said someone said this very intelligently. They said, "Look, we were told that." getting more competitor telecom sector great but now look we have three telecom companies one of them is on the and you know geo came in and lowered prices for everyone destroyed the deal, and then jacked prices back up and why if the winners are going to be the, the winners are going to be just Ambani in, in this why do we want that to be the future of, of the private sector in agriculture I don't think there's a sense that in fact there are lots and lots whether they are local companies larger traders SMEs agritech etc that are going to benefit I think there's this because in the last decade, so much of the prosperity has been directed to just a handful of families. And that's creating and that's and that's exacerbating sense of, of unfairness.
0: I think well put, Mark, and that brings us to the second part of the agenda, the reform in agriculture for inclusive growth. So it's just not for the Ambani's and the Ani's, but it's for farmers like me and it's for investors like you who is willing to spread that capital wider entrepreneur base and bring in the next generation of Anis and Ambani's uh, in this country in in agriculture.
2: And Adanis and Ambani's I don't know if that, I I just was joking that they all have the last name that ends in ani.
0: So but interestingly it's true.
2: Look I again I go back to the that I said right which is really anywhere from 25% of the Indian economy is and that should be our, I actually am, I'm a, that that for India to emulate China, uh, first of all, th- that day is past, okay, that world trade integration is past. And, and frankly, it's not going to work. And, and actually looking more agri centric development and agribusiness centric development is very important. If we if we look at what at what Brazil has done to their agri, if we look at what Turkey has done. That is a path that is less natural, that we be a more smaller town processing through agri-entership, through storage. That is a good idea. Everyone at Omnivore firmly believes this, that, that if India can solve the bottleneck, it's agriculture, in particular water, we could be an agri-power with respect to exports and value, because we literally grow everything. And if we can do that, that is a better path to prosperity than the destruction of our environment, heavy manufacturing, mining, or, you know, and and trying to emulate China in a world where the Chinese model is now going to be challenged by by the West. I think that shared prosperity needs to be there. And and so much of what is, is on the table right now is how do we disintermediate between farmers and consumers so that farmers can get paid more, consumers might even have to be able to pay less, and that the pie changes incentives so that farmers start growing for actual demand, so that farmers start prioritizing quality instead of quantity, so that our food becomes nutritious and healthy. There's so many aspects of this, but it's really about building an agricultum like i whenever i talk about agroization people some people instinctively recoil they're like oh you want it to be like america i'm like hell no god america's a disaster america's more subsidy addicted than Punjab." okay the american agro essentially eats malnutrition and obesity simultaneously. i don't want that at all what i want is is millions of agners and millions of agri smes what i want is india to actually be able to you know the categories of X flow, we should be exporting so much more, and we should be creating better and better agri-products for our own consumers that, that address these issues of nutrition, that address these issues of health. There's so much done here. When when I started working in Indian agriculture, I mean, initially when I was in, in 2005 doing some work for ITC, uh, but then when I joined Gold of Seven, you know, I always knew the decades of work because so complicated and so interesting. Right. And I think there's so much done with it to make all of the participants' lives better. I think there's just a lot of resistance because the system has been the system. for.
0: Well, Mark, I'd like to take a few minutes of uh, your report and take some time talking about your vision, your 2020 vision. A very interesting report that you have put on every 10 years. This McKinsey comes up with a FIDA report with envisioning with the industry body but you have done a very different job over there would you like to enlighten the audience very briefly maybe even your executive summary a few minutes executive sure. summary of your vision 2030 on your report and and it's not you being very selfish for your fund here i, I read it back to back two times so i really appreciate yeah i would be i would be happy that when your team have put together
2: listen the the idea behind vision 2030 was to was to essentially say right now in the midst of all that we're struggling can we can we think past can we think past current crisis covid everything that that we grapple with in this moment and try to look around and say one decade what is indian Agri- what are the positive changes what are the negative changes what are the opportunities and and let's be clear some of the stuff that that we talk about it's not that we think in 10 years, oh, every farm, like, it's that we think that is going to become, right, whenever you think about change, change happened a little bit, it happens like a wedge, and that wedge gets bigger and bigger and bigger until finally the door is open and everything. and so many of the things talking about here are trends that we think initially progressive farmers will adopt, eventually top third of farmers will adopt, and, and hopefully at some point all of them, so we identified eight major trends, and one major the eight major trends, if I were to kind of summarize. One is this idea that precision agriculture and automation will will increasingly create a farm of that. You will see a much more widespread adoption of, of these technologies on farms, that the automation technologies are critical because labor is leaving agriculture at a very quick rate, and that precision will become a new normal. A second trend is that we see a new wave of biotechnology coming right the old wave of biotech came in bt cotton essentially just focused on on productivity it was just focused on, you know, essentially how do we produce more of something by reducing biotic threats like insects. And I think our belief is that a new generation of techniques whether it's CRISPR or RNAi, gene editing, what have you, will start being able to create tastier, nutritional, eco-friendly crops. And one of the cool things about the new set of technologies is that they are more widely open source than a lot of what came. A lot of what came before really came in from big, big, big ag companies that were easy to demonize. And, and clear, like if you look at Monsanto's behavior in the late 90s, it Correct. super demonized them. They behaved very, very, in very crazy, unfortunate ways and, and built a negative reputation. Even if a lot of their products were actually quite good, suing farmers is never good for PR, or good to begin with. But I think we're looking at a new wave of biotech that's going to be more focused on the holistic quality of crop as opposed to just how do we bright. I think that's going to right. be trend and, and and hopefully we'll see the biotechnology ecosystem in India more open to that, especially if the ownership of that IP is domestically held, more widely shared, and not just seemingly imposed on high by Western multinationals. Third trend that we're seeing, especially this year, is the rise of digitization, connecting farms and farmers and all market participants in agriculture. And, and that, and that you know, when we wrote Omnivore 2030, we actually started it well before COVID. And that trend has rapidly rated by COVID, right? right? The fact that, that traditional input dealers and Mondays and all the usual players in the supply chain was so badly impacted by lockdown has radically accelerated digitization where farmers that, that knew of digital options, but kind of sat on the side, being aware of them, but not dependent on them. Have now kind of adopted them very, very quickly because they needed to. A fourth trend where where the APMs and, and the contract farming reform is a big part of it is the idea of farmer that, that farmers are going increasingly Correct. become aware of what they want and they're going to grow what consumers want rather than just pushing out whatever that's what they've grown for decades. If more and more want a variety of bajra that's very, very nutritious, but a bit more like wheat in terms of how it cooks, right? Cause that's kind of want, you know, it's an atta and maida addicted country for better or worse. Then they'll grow that, right? And, and hopefully by, by bridging farm rumors, everyone can be, can be made much, much better off. Fifth is that the majority of rural jobs are going to be of higher value and non agricultural. So there's going to be a shift out of farming right. to other rural professions. And, and I think it's interesting that work from home, if that remained a viable option, can would actually help to empty out of our cities where, where people can continue to live, maybe not in their native place, but maybe, you know, in the close, in the district, in, in the largest of the cities nearby. As opposed to just everyone saying five, six, seven. Correct. Right.
0: The r- rural BPOs are really grown over over the crisis. They absolutely. have like thousand percent growth in the number of seats in the rural BPOs because people migrated back.
2: No, absolutely. And and rise of edtech, right, is bringing higher quality education into rural India. We can argue about some of these edtech startups and their policies, and you know there have been a particular, but I think there is a power to ed tech. My own, my own daughter goes to a very good school, but she still watches Khan Academy on the regular or trigonometry or precalculus or whatever she is studying. She's up with that because it's just super high quality, and and so I think children all over the world are benefiting from that. And so I think ed tech is going to to definitely eat the, the education in significant ways, and hopefully. We can see, like, what I, what I am dying is a world where people don't feel obligated to migrate for economic success. Or if it's, you know, a more localized world is actually kind of better and more stable. So definitely, you know, yes. If you're an aspiring artist, right, you're probably going to move back. Like that's how it. Is. But if you want a success corporate career and you're from, you know, coastal Andhra, you should be able to have that career. Good to be able to have that career in in Vijayawada without feeling the obligation to migrate. And so I'm I'm hoping that we're going to start seeing this, and, and obviously even even smaller even smaller towns be becoming more successful. A sixth point we have done is that we're going to start seeing much more fresh green that are that are available. So right now. Now, a lot of those fresh grown in open fields, kind of pesticide-soaked. Uh,
0: but... Education but on, the, on the things and what... Right. Especially start, around Bombay and other places.
2: Yeah, exactly. Starts more and more organized, hairy, urban, controlled environment. When I say I don't mean urban farming, I don't mean vertical U.S.-style L.E. greenhouses. I mean, essentially, polyhouses encircling our cities, where you're going to have fresh pressure sub that becomes available, that, that is a higher and higher quality, that was grown in greenhouses, polyhouses, nethouses, very little pesticide, that's safe and healthy and, and very, very fresh. And I think we're going to start seeing a better system for that all over. A seventh point is that diversity, quality and sustainability of all food sources will increase. And finally, that food will increasingly and scientifically replace medicine that there'll be a symbiotic relationship between food and medicine and, and honestly like India has been doing that millennia if you Correct. think of Ayurveda and things we've always known of the of the medicinal powers but as as our understanding of genetic and human nutrition increases we can increasingly change our diets to reflect we can have this syn between Ayurveda and and modern understanding of, of DNA and and the and the microbiome and all of these things and put it all together. And start eating in ways that, that take care of some of our, of our risks like diabetes and and other kind of congenital. Diseases or chronic, and and so all of that together, we would say we're we're pretty optimistic about about what the future of Indian agriculture looks like. With one major caveat, and that is climate change is going whipsaw Indian agriculture.
0: I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. We seeing because of lack of traffic and lack of vehicular pollution, we had enough an ample rain which destroyed our crops also at some places. How do we look at this major threat looming very large over the world?
2: Look, I I think it's it's one of these things, we all have to come together on a war footing and figure out what needs to be done to address this. And it's it's a challenge. If you think about the last 12 months, it's been a challenge to get people to stand six feet away from each other and wear masks. Which is, let's be honest, not that hard, okay? It's gonna be hard. This is gonna be like a, a mass struggle where public, private, not-for-profit, civic world has to come together and figure out how, how to both mitigation, how do we reduce our emissions and, right, adaptation drives, how do we make our ag, agri- and this is going to be, it's daunting to, to even think about it. And I think right now, whether it's, it's all nations are, are sort of taking it seriously and sort of seeing what they can get away with. And we're gonna get I'm not special that we're going to be able to gation very well, because I think everyone is kind of, I think everyone's encouraged to free ride. We're going to have to do adaptation-wise. Our agricultural sector is going to see between highly variable climate, rising average temperatures, more biotic threats of diseases and insects. Just across the board, we're going to be stressed and challenged. And that is going to be <laughs> very, very, um, but it's also going to create very unique opportunities for, for Indian companies, for startups, for Indian farmers. And, and it's just a matter of how we come together and do this, and, and hope we can.
0: So, Mark, I would love to wrap up this session with two more points that I want to get your thoughts on. The first is what China did to the world and africa and australia for mineral and other resources do you think india would uh, leverage uh, africa as the next destination for agriculture we have seen a couple of uh, our indian entrepreneurs actually in africa doing floriculture doing shrimp farming doing feeds uh, animal feed but that's not on the grandiose scale that you mentioned about you know that india could become uh, a very big Food powerhouse of the world. India What's your view?
2: My, my view is let Africa, let African need in Africa, and let Indians succeed in India. Not trying to be Trumpy about it, right? Just, just in the sense that that I I think most of these experiments in in Africa have largely failed. You know, there was a point where an Indian entrepreneur owned lakhs of acres in Ethiopia, and eventually it right. was taken. Eventually, it was taken away from him.
0: Yeah, almost By the dictator.
2: none. You know, almost none of the. Land-based large-scale farming projects in Africa have really taken off. I, I definitely think Africa is a good opportunity for Indian entrepreneurs from a processing perspective for for Indian agribusiness. On. And I and I would never say no, 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 don't don't do that. But I but I what I would say is if the plan is let's aggregate huge land tracts that used to be owned by small farmers and farm them, I would say is probably not going to be sustainable. And and honestly, if you look at the Chinese in Africa, they've engendered massive amounts of resentment. There is serious pushback to their yeah. to their sort of economic extortionism. I'm, uh, I'm I'll put it this way, I, I tend to take a, a pretty hardcore pro-India, anti-China stance on those things. So I, I really think that that India needs to understand the Chinese threat for what it is and meet it. And, and that also means behaving in, in better ways with our global partners. If, if China's approach to Africa is essentially the strip mining, then if Indian entrepreneurs can come in and be better and, and leverage the Indian diaspora, which, to be clear, dominates right trade in places like Kenya and Uganda and Tanzania, Right, Cindy's in Nigeria, and and do so in ways that create shared value. Then I think it will benefit India tremendously. That that we know how to do business without depriving locals of of their own sovereignty, basically. So what I would say is uh, let's let's avoid the whole. There, there's so much to be done in Indian agriculture in India that this whole fantasy of doing kind of land colonialism it's a terrible idea honestly
0: well put I, I accept your point mark last question because you know i've got ancestor land and we are doing work on it my biggest challenge is the land reforms and Yep. You know, I've had issues with land mafia. I've had issues at the at the legal courts and whatnot. Do you think how do we solve this issue of land fragmentation and land mafia, you know, all trying to
2: Oh man, listen, I
0: up the agricultural land. Is what is the kind of reform do you think uh, we need to do for the betterment of agriculture?
2: I really wish there had been a fourth farm bill for land, right? I think yeah. that I honestly think that is a massive missed opportunity. And I think, you know, my hope was if, when people asked me about the farm bills in like June, July, August, as it was just rolling out, I was like, oh, okay, they're going to do land next. And I'm like, I don't know. This was <laughs> pushback mm. was, pretty, was pretty big. You know, you really have a serious challenge in land. You have a challenge that if you are a land owner, you barely have a, a there are very few ways that you can legally safely lease your land if you don't want to cultivate it, right? Correct. And you always will have the fear that whoever you lease it to could expropriate it from. On the other hand, we have a terrible challenge, which is that all of our subsidies and benefits are all land-based in agriculture. So even if a farmer owns one hectare, but is tilling five hectares, he only can get benefit for the hectare that he owns, right? And the rest yeah. of the fits would go to someone else. You just don't have a free market in land. You can't buy and sell. There have been some some reforms the state of karnataka recently reformed land uh, agricultural land purchases to allow anyone to kind of do it and, and as a result because there's so much control you have a land mafia and because there's so much control you have fat bodies across the country you know basically what's the better word looting looting is the, okay right, right? and that's and that system like that system is not a new system it dates back to the mogul but i think i think a couple things need to happen one is we need to have a, a, an absolutely final we need to have a massive kind of operation flood style project with respect to land digitization right where the records are are digitized entirely transparent and where we we finalize you know about 15 percent of the agricultural land in india is under dispute and those disputes are they go on for decades
0: so, i'm suffering one on mine
2: <laughs> right so if we can do a major push on digitization. Finally, build a, a complete digital record. Have a complete record of shit that will unlock. And then finally, when we do that, build a a record that reflects not just who owns the land, but who is cultivating it. And if we can have a digital contract that for leasing, right? You know, and people have talked about the applications of blockchain here, where where if you lease if if farmer ram leases to farmer sham okay then then farmer sham it is reflected in the database but but there's no chance that he can expropriate that but then all subsidies and benefits go to the cultivator then we have a free market in land we have a we have benefits you know especially in this world of DBT going to the right it will be a much better system but you know it's one of those things the same way that challenging the Mundi, right, is, is and challenging that monopoly, and all the people that benefit from that awful monopoly, it's the same thing as there in land. So many people benefit, so many mid-level bureaucrats benefit from this power, from this opaqueness, this opacity. It, it's it's going to be hard, but I think it's very, very critical because what we need is we need to allow people that want to farm to farm more, and for people that don't want to farm, it shouldn't be that they that some you know the, the least intelligent child is kept on farm because god forbid you lease and someone steals and and yeah. i think and i don't think in general that we're going to move towards more consolidated farms in terms of ownership i think in i think india is so dense and so rapidly urbanizing that any farmer knows that the optionality on their land value is very very high they know that haryanvi farmers that sold for one lakh per acre to DLF de- 90 are, are suicidal, okay? Like Got look it. at what their land value could have been. So I think people do wanna hold their land. They don't want it, but they need to be able to freely lease. And we also need to allow larger and larger farm manager, right, that don't own what they are cultivating, but, but proper farm manager, like you see, forget, you don't really even have this in the US as much, but in Latin America, it's very, very common, right, to see, a farm manager managing a lakh hectare, but those lakh hectares are 30 hectares, 50 hectares, 30, 50, 30, 50 from, from tons and tons of people that they put together and manage. And, and I hope that we can move in that direction. I just think in general, after, you know, after all of this pushback on these three farm bills, it might be another five or 10 years before we see more agri reform.
0: Well, Mark, it's been great chatting with you. Before I go, I want to probably know one last thing. Uh, how's your second fund doing? And I'm sure you're looking to citing investment opportunities. Look, it's
2: it, second fund is doing great. I think in general, we're
0: seeing more entrepreneurs
2: in this agri tech space. We're seeing better entrepreneurs. That's not to denigrate my first fund entrepreneurs. It's just that the kinds of people that are coming into this space now are increasingly increasingly prior startup veterans non-agri startup veterans that that know growth hacking and blitz scaling and and you know and and know how to build a startup and are now tackling our our sectors. so we're pretty excited by by everything we're seeing and we're seeing much faster levels of growth than we saw in in our first fund the digitization environment the the ubiquity of smartphone 4g you know the, what what Geo has rolled out to their full credit, you know. I know I was knocking the the uh, the Emperor a little bit earlier, but you know what what they have been able to build in the mobile sector has really rapidly digitized rural India. And so I, I think the enabling environment for startups is much easier today than it was, you know, four years ago, six years ago, eight years ago, ten years ago. And so the businesses that we're investing in now are growing much faster than we invested in earlier, and we're very very bullish on the space.
0: Excellent. On this note, Mark, I need to wrap up. I really appreciate you spending time and talking to us on this topic, which is also fairly near and dear to me. Although I'm more on the healthcare side of things, but nutrition and wellness is very important to me. So thank you very much, Mark, for taking this time and talking to us. Uh, Before we part, I'd like to thank our sponsors, our team members for having done the due work. Um, I'd like to make one last announcement. We will close uh, 2020, the year, with uh, Mark Mobius, who's going to come in next week to give us the 2021 perspective. Thank you very much much and stay safe. Bye-bye, Mark.
2: Take care. Bye-bye.